Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our guest today is Stephanie Wilkins, Editor-in-Chief at Legal Tech News of ALM. Stephanie had been a civil litigator at big law firms in New York for a decade when she decided to pursue a different career path. Having enjoyed the writing aspect of her legal work, she decided to become a freelance writer. Stephanie soon found opportunities writing about legal tech with Above the Law, technology companies, and legal marketers. In 2022, she became editor-in-chief at Legal Tech News, where she has written on various issues pertaining to technology in the legal industry. Additionally, Stephanie is a freelance photographer who has traveled the world. You'll find a link to her photography in the show notes. In today's wide-ranging conversation, we talked about how she made the leap from private practice to freelance writing, traveling the world, what she sees on the horizon for generative AI and legal, and her plans for the direction of legal tech news. It was great talking to such a creative spirit. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did participating in it. Thank you for listening. I'm having a conversation today with Stephanie Wilkins, who's the editor-in-chief of Legal Tech News. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us and making the time. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a little bit about your background. You uh, go to Notre Dame, go to NYU Law School, and you start practicing law. Yes. All pretty standard stuff. Before we get into the turns of your career, why law school? Why become a litigator? Well, I wish I had a better answer for that than I do. I've spent, you know, a few decades <laughs> asking myself <laughs> that same question. Um, I think I'm a very, this part of my path was very common. They're very common, you know, you go do liberal arts in undergrad, you're a good student, don't really know what you want to do. Everyone tells you law school is a great career path and you just sort of follow the flow. I wish I had a more thoughtful reason for why I went, but I was at the time. That's the answer I would give if you asked me the question. <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was particularly interested in, you know, criminology and going the criminal route. I was a psychology major that obviously did not happen, but that I guess if there was any impetus, that would have been it. And you became a litigator, a civil litigator, right? Yeah, general commercial civil litigation at big law firms in New York. And you did that for 10, 12 years? Yeah, about 10. And then you made a career change. Tell us about that. I did. I, again, a very common story. I got very burned out by the big law life. It happens to a lot of us, probably because, at least in part, because I didn't have a compelling reason to go to law school in the first <laughs> place. So, and I wasn't doing criminal law. I was just doing cases that, you know, obviously they mattered to my clients and I did my best work on them, but they weren't really, you know, getting me out of bed in the morning. I was at the point where partnership was on the table and they distinctly said to me, we think you would be great. Our only question mark about you is we can't really tell if you want to be here. And that's regroup in a year. And when we regrouped in a year, it was pretty clear to all of us that I did not want to keep going on that path for the rest of my life. And so I made a leap. I always liked the writing part. I was very good at the law, even though I wasn't happy. I asked myself, how good could I be at something I did enjoy? So I made the leap. I took a little time off and traveled to get some rest, sleep off the last eight years of big law and see the world. And then I dove into freelance writing and photography. I'm also a professional photographer. So it was a lot of just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, I can't even begin to list the number 
of odd gigs I took on over the years. And at the time, if you had told me I would have anything to do with the legal industry again, I would have said you were crazy. I thought I was out of it. But I still had a lot of connections and a lot of good friends in it and people who were moving on from big law into various parts of legal. And more and more of them offered me writing jobs. And, you know, when you're a freelancer, you can't turn down money in the beginning for sure. So I just started writing in the legal space, which became the legal tech space very quickly. I didn't realize I was particularly tech savvy at the time, but I guess looking back, I always have been. And I always joke, it's not that hard to be the most tech savvy person in big law, especially in the aughts. (laughs) So, you know, it just sort of fell into that. And from there, I gained this niche expertise, even sort of without even realizing. And through various paths, that led me to where I am today. So there's a lot to unpack there in that answer. Let's, Let's go through a few points. First, what was it about the practice that had you not want to be there? Was it the hours pressure? Was it the substantive work? Was it just not wanting to be a lawyer under any circumstances? Well, what was it that led you to leave the, the practice of law? I would say it was a combination of the hours and the subject matter, because I will work around the clock for something I'm really, really interested in. Or if something I'm not particularly interested in, I will give you the best eight hours of my day. This was a combination of something I wasn't enjoying that required all of my time. And it just burned me out. And I mean, you're doing it for obviously a lot of money, but you don't even leave the office enough to spend the money. I wasn't that invested in any of it. And it just was, it was too much. And at the end of the day, even when you're a senior associate, you're at the whim of clients and partners. And if somebody on a particular matter doesn't have good time management skills, that becomes your problem. As hard as I tried to manage the hours aspect, I I would get in early and come 5.30, somebody would give me something due the next day because they'd forgotten about it and I was there all night. So there seemed to be no way to really control it. And the prospect of being a junior partner didn't really seem a whole lot better in terms of the things I disliked about it. So I just decided it was it was time. I was unhappy. I came to a realization that I was unhappy every day of my life, even if it was you know just for 25 minutes a day, it was still every single day. I wasn't even, it sounds dramatic, but I wasn't even aiming to be happy. I was aiming to be not unhappy. That's the level I had hit. It's unfortunately not an unusual story in the profession. I've heard people say that over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. It's something the profession has to grapple with because you lose incredibly talented people to other professions. But at the same time, life is short and it's too short to be unhappy with what you do. Yep. I've I've been saying that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So you became a freelance writer and photographer. Uh, For those listening, if you want to see some amazing images, go to stephaniewilkinsphotography.com. Thank you. You've got some amazing images up there. Tell us. Thank you. I I, I know I'm going to segue off of what you probably expected for a podcast focused on the legal industry, but I'm curious, what kind of travel did you do and, and what were your one or two favorite places, either from just the experience standpoint or from where you thought you found the best images? Sure. That's all. People ask me that a lot and it, it's hard to pick a favorite. A lot of the travel I have done actually has been solo travel, especially a lot of my friends were lawyers because I spent much of my life in that and it's hard to get people to take time off or have be able to take time off at the same time. So I jumped into solo traveling really early on and it was great. I've traveled a lot of the world by myself, which is good because it doesn't keep you on a schedule, especially as a photographer. If you do see that thing, you can wait for the perfect shot. You have all the time in the world and nobody is waiting on you. 
Photography wise, in terms of pure beauty, I would say Switzerland, uh, particularly around the Matterhorn. That was amazing. I would say the most interesting place or city I've ever been to is Istanbul. It's just a combination of new and old and religious and secular. And it's literally divided between Europe and Asia. It's just such a mix of everything. And it was just a fascinating place. And then I would say the best trip I did, the most interesting, I did, I spent a week on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. I went from Beijing through Mongolia and ending in Moscow. Oh, that's awesome. I'm very jealous. That's incredible. Yes. I mean, I could list more places. Obviously, Australia. See the Great Barrier Reef while it's still around. I recommend that. That's the one place I've been that you mentioned, and it is an amazing moment. Yeah. Do you still travel as much and focus on your photography now that you're editor-in-chief? Um, I still try to travel. I was just in Montreal over the weekend, obviously with a more, you know, partly in-office, full-time job. It's a little less leeway when you're when you're freelancing. You can work in the middle of the night if you want to, and then, then you can't dictate the news cycle. The news comes in when it comes in, so... That's a little bit of a shift, but I do. I try to travel as much as I can. Try to get back into the photography. The interesting thing, I was a working photographer for a while, a lot doing food and real estate. And when you have to carry a bag of heavy camera gear around all day, every day, it becomes less fun to carry it around on your days off. So I feel like the more I did it for work, the less I did it for pleasure. So now I'm starting to refine the joy in taking photos and I have a trip to Morocco coming up later in the fall, so that will be a good combination of my travel and photography. Yeah. Morocco's an awesome place. Have you been there? I have not. You'll have a great time. I can't wait. Yeah, it's wonderful. So you're a freelance photographer, traveler, and you begin to pick up some freelance writing gigs in the legal space Mm -hmm. because why not? You are still a lawyer and you've got the experience to draw from and you get paid. So why not do it? Right. How did that turn into a focus on legal tech? Because as you said, you're not a tech maven by training, I take it, from what you said. I think I I was tech savvy by osmosis without realizing it. You know, my father worked in technology. We had a computer since I was young. So I was, I, I always felt comfortable with it. I just didn't, it wasn't really a conscious thing. And even looking back now in hindsight, if I look at the work I did when I was an associate, I was often involved in leading the e-discovery projects or even meeting with vendors. So realizing now it was always there. I was working with Above the Law for a while. I've been friends with a lot of those people since long before any of us worked at Above the Law. And they needed somebody to do a lot of their writing, their product reviews, and they they trusted that I could do it. And I dove in and it ended up being a good 10 years of writing about technology products and offshoots of that. I worked directly, did some writing for technology companies themselves or legal marketers that represented technology companies. And it just is a thing that kind of snowballed. I understood it. I enjoyed writing about it and people liked my work. So one after another, it went on and it became at least half of my work. And then when the pandemic hit and everything was locked down, there was not a lot of photography going on because people weren't leaving their houses. So I doubled down on the writing and most of that was the legal technology writing. And I had a very solid base of freelance clients. It was great. I mean, it was, it's hard to feel like you've made it as a freelancer. And I felt like I had, it was really solid. And that's happened to be when the job posting came open for the editor-in-chief at LTN almost a year ago. And I applied. And again, at the time, I didn't appreciate 
that I had this unique skill set, I guess. I do know a lot of people in the legal tech space. I didn't realize it was the bubble it was because I already knew the people in it. I just thought it was bigger. So I. It is a bubble, isn't it? It really is. And I thought there would be a lot more people who would apply or be qualified for this. And then I talked to a few people in the space who all basically said, anybody else who is really qualified for this that we can think of doesn't really have a reason to leave their current job. So you would really probably be a great candidate. And so I applied and it went quickly and it's been great. I'm really glad I made the move. turns out you were a great candidate and it's a great opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah, I would think that's a, the ability to write and analyze and understand technology is not a typical combination of skills. No, it's not. And then you add in the legal factor. And I, I really do feel that having been a practicing lawyer helps me a lot because I can truly appreciate how certain products can help in the day to day. I mean, what really got me into it, even when I was just doing the product reviews, even 10 years ago, when someone would present a product to me and I could completely imagine how it would have made my life so much easier. And now people are coming out with products that would have literally saved me an entire weekend of work. The little nerdy side of me gets all excited about it. (laughs) And so I think bringing that practical legal approach to it is something that not a lot of people have. It's the combination of law and tech and being able to write about both for both audiences is a very fine line to walk. And I try my best. And so far, so good, it seems. At the time you took on the job at Legal Tech News in like September of 2022, pre-chat GPT bombshell. Right. So up to that point, how would you see legal tech evolve and how would you assess the landscape at the time? You mentioned it was a smaller bubble and you appreciated. Right. Well, even though I had been following it and writing about it, I feel like when I started in this job, I started speaking to say law firms more than I had in the past decade. So I was really comparing what had and had not changed since I had been in a law firm and some things had changed and Some had not changed as much as I would have hoped in that amount of time. So I came in under that lens. And I also came in with the impression of everything I had sort of been seeing up to that date, up to that time was people are sick of the buzzwords and the bells and whistles. They want technology that actually works. Let's focus on what problems are these solving? Are they actually making the users happier? Is it making their lives harder because you can't implement it? I came in with a much more practical lens that way based off of my work experience. And that's the road we really were starting to go down. And I had wanted, I had some grand ideas for a few projects that I'm only getting off the ground now, because as you said, not long after generative AI blew up, I couldn't have timed that better with my job. Yeah, I can (laughs) imagine. Yeah. And so that became all encompassing for a little bit. And obviously we're still writing about it a lot, but we're trying to not write about it just for the sake of writing about it. Again, that same lens of why are we using it? How are we using it? How is it helping? Not just AI for the sake of AI, the same way I've always been. Don't just use tech for the sake of tech. Actually make it work and solve real problems. So take us through the evolution of generative AI and the impact on the industry. I've got my own views on it, which I'm happy to share. But talk to us about the cycle you've seen over the last, what would it have been, 10 months now? Yeah, the story is still very much being written. So I'm curious to see where it goes. But I would say it started with massive hype. I myself was breathlessly typing into ChatGPT when it first came out because it was unlike anything I had seen. And it felt sentient. It felt real in a way that nothing else had. And so 
I think I, I wrote my first article on it in mid-December of last year about whether it can or should be used in legal. And it got, in that article, you got a lot of traction. People weren't really sure what to do with the people who were talking about it, but not a lot of people were writing about it. So we really dug in to understand the technology to write about it more. And I would say it went from super excitement, a lot of hype and buzz, not necessarily founded in anything other than it feels like magic, which I don't blame people. It did. It did feel like magic, I have to admit. Yeah. And then that sort of switched to equally unfounded fear because we went from the this is magic to this will replace everybody. What do we do? And people who were afraid of it wanted to say it wasn't good. It was a very strange about face. Thankfully, I feel like that period wasn't that long. And then we shifted to more realistic conversations about it. Still a lot of hype, still a lot of not really understanding the basics. Even by March of last year, when we had legal week in New York, the first generative AI workshop we did on day one was standing room only people just wanted to learn everything they could about it, which is good. I think education is still key to this. And then I feel like now we've sort of moved on, at least hopefully it seems somewhat past the hype cycle to the conversations that I'm hearing are more mature. They're rooted in actual thoughtful questions. People want discrete use cases. How do we use this? How, what are, how are we going to solve problems with it? What should we use it for? Maybe we don't use it for everything as opposed to the initial you know, slap the word AI on it and then sell it and push it out and get people to buy it without even understanding it. So I do think we have turned at least somewhat of a maturity corner. There's still a ways to go. And, you know, there's always early adopters and late adopters and then every range of people in between. But I'm seeing it shift in that way. And that ideally will continue. I'm very curious to see what comes because every day something new is coming out, whether or not it's a specific legal tool or just a development in AI, I think we've just scratched the surface of what we're going to see, but I'm excited to keep following it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting moment, isn't it? Yes, the panic seems to have died down a little bit, particularly as people are getting their hands around the reality of generative AI. Right. But it's an interesting moment in the market, isn't it? Because you've got startups popping up all over the place, startups failing all over the place, startups consolidation in the industry, then you've got the big players doing various and sundry things. How do you see this shaking out? I wish I had a crystal ball, but <laughs> based on what, I, what I'm what i seeing, I'm not surprised by some of the big consolidations we've seen recently. I expect we'll see more. Uh, I think we'll have to, because as you said, we have so many players popping up or even the existing players that occupy very similar spaces trying to implement the same technologies there can only be so much room in the market for the same thing. And frankly, whether you're talking about legal tech companies or law firms in particular, or you know, in-house legal departments, there's a lack of talent. There's only so many people that are these data scientists that are these fully trained in these LLMs or machine learning. And it's going to be a battle to get them. And they're just not everybody will have the means to keep up. And unfortunately, a lot of these tools are still expensive. The chips that run them are very, very expensive. So people aren't going to have the budgets to have five different tools. You know, they're going to want a tool that does a lot of things. So I think we'll see a lot more consolidation that way. I am seeing a lot of startups pop up, but I don't want to, I don't want people to be discouraged and think, oh, I shouldn't do this if I don't have AI, because there's still a lot of use out there for tools that don't need generative AI or don't need AI or things that are solving discrete problems. 
And so I think we're starting to, again, it's part of the shift we were discussing. More attention is coming back on those. As the hype goes away, people are realizing, oh, I just don't need to buy AI. I need to buy a tool. So I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by people willing to experiment, but I do think it will be from, for better or worse, I don't have a strong feeling right now on whether this massive consolidation is good or bad in the end. We shall see, but I do think we will see more of it. I'm not surprised by the ones we've seen. It's interesting you mentioned the other tools because I hadn't thought about it that way, but from personal experience, I've seen the same dynamic play out where the generative AI buzz has gotten people thinking about the problems that they need to solve, what they would label AI can solve, but it's really technology. And you begin to drill into it and say, well, we can use these automation tools or that document management tool or this particular tool. We don't need an LLM to solve this particular problem. And I find people more willing to consider and, and move in that direction. And I give credit to the generative AI buzz for that. I think that's right. I absolutely do. I think legal as an industry was behind the curve on technology adoption. Certainly there were people ahead of the curve, but as a whole behind the curve. And then AI blew in and you know AI is not legal technology. It's this technology that's going into every sector, but it's definitely underlying legal. And it woke a lot of people up. So whether or not it ends up being AI tools they implement, I think it will lead to a broader tech adoption in legal that's been a long time coming. I think that's right. How do you see the pandemic impacting adoption of technology? I'm sort of going back in time a little bit because this sort of falls on the tails of the, the pandemic. Yeah, I think that definitely started it. I mean, I think the pandemic was the first thing because people had to rely on technology whether or not they wanted to. All the choices they made might not be their permanent choices. A lot of them were panic decisions or band-aids to fix a problem, but it did get a lot of people more comfortable with using technology in general. So that sort of set the stage. So then when AI came along, it helped. But I mean, I seriously question how much of the pandemic Changes are really sticking when you see more and more offices going back to four days a week, pushing for five days a week. We proved all these things we could do remotely and all these things technology can do. And now it seems like some people are just wanting to forget that. Or I mean, there's there's all sorts of motivations you can speculate about. There's a whole other conversation to be had about return to office. But I do think the people that want to adopt AI, at least some of them are definitely spurred on by getting more comfortable by necessity through the pandemic. No, I, th I think that's right. And I, like anything else in the industry, from Great Recession to pandemic, you see this moment, this burst of momentum, and then people do tend to revert to form, don't they? They do. Well, especially in a profession that's been around for a couple hundred years. I mean, it's people are comfortable doing things the way they've always been done. I want to change focus just a little bit, talk about the impact of generative AI on the access to justice gap, because I know you're focused in that area as well. And I, I was talking to someone earlier today, and, and she was concerned that the cost of developing products was going to not close the A to J gap, but widen it, that these tools were going to be used by AML 100 firms or firms that had the resources to do it. And I took sort of the, the counter approach, perhaps the more naive or optimistic approach, because I've seen really some incredible strides being made by a new generation of 
lawyers, and in some cases, people who are not trained as lawyers, but contributing to the space and their ability to use this tool to service this problem. I'm more optimistic on where, where do you fall on that continuum? I fall a little bit more on the optimistic side, which is a little unusual for me. I don't tend to be an optimist. I'm not a pessimist either. I'm very much a realist. I am optimistic about it. I think there was a bit of it's a mini cycle within the A to J space with generative AI, where immediately people were really excited about the possibilities it could have on the impacts it could have on access to justice. I feel like every time there's a new technology out, that is the case. And to me, that's a great thing. Whether or not it ends up working out is another question, but anything that spurs more interest and people trying to put more resources to it, I think is a very good thing. And the potential for these technologies and new AI technologies to improve that space, I think is great. The work still needs to be done and it needs to be done properly. And I do see the other side that, I mean, I've heard a lot of concerns because these technologies are expensive, that it's a problem that they, if they only fall into the hands of the rich corporations and firms that can already afford them, it's not really helping the little person because if they can't afford it, it doesn't help. So it's really the, the onus, at least for now, will be on those corporations to use the technology for good. And we've seen some solid examples of that, of companies or firms implementing it in pro bono, implementing Multiple companies have worked with, you know, the Innocence Projects on it. So the potential is there and I want to be highly optimistic about it. I'm not saying it's a magic bullet, but I think it has greater potential than anything we've seen so far. And there's so, there's so much progress to be made that even small progress is good in my mind. No, that's right. And I'm curious in a related topic, the impact of these technologies, particularly as you can, if you could show that they can help deliver services to a broader swath of people. What does that mean for the regulatory framework? Does that help push regulatory reform on or does it scare the regulators, the, the Supreme Courts more? Where do you see that playing out? The regulation is tricky because I think regulation is necessary, but my biggest concern in the regulation space is that we need to be careful about who is doing the regulating. The technology should be regulated or the regulation at least should be informed by people who actually understand technology. I mean, much like lawyers are not technologists, you know, regulators, most of them are not technologists. And there's a definite possibility of just regulating out of fear, regulating out of, you know, other interests or just being reactionary that could really hamper the use of this technology. I hope it doesn't. It's so far, it seems like Regulators are at least getting or trying to get good impact from companies in the space to understand it. And I think if done properly, regulation could do a great good because just as with any technology, you know, we're using these technologies hopefully for good, but the bad actors are using them for bad probably faster than we are. So something does need to be done. I don't purport to be a regulatory expert. I don't know. I think regulatory is one of the trickiest issues surrounding AI right now. And every country is taking a sort of a slightly different approach. Europe's been a little bit ahead of us as they are with a lot of regulations. Hopefully everyone can get on the same page, but regulating out of fear is not a good place to be. Where do you see the role of technology? Let's talk about things like the unauthorized practice of law and non-lawyer ownership of law firms, the sandboxes in Arizona, Utah, et cetera. Do you think generative AI will accelerate those changes, or do you think it'll strike fear into the hearts of people who are thinking about changing the lawyer regulatory side? It'll certainly accelerate 
the arguments around it, I have already been hearing a lot of buzz sort of off the record conversations or background conversations about how a lot of this is going to come down to state bar associations and how protectionist they are. And I think that's right. I mean, I think there is. I mean, having you know been a lawyer, I passed the bar. It wasn't easy. And a lot of people sort of hold on to that as a badge and really want to protect the industry. But at the same time, there's, what is it, something like 90%, 70%, 90% of cases don't get representation. There's so much out there. If state bar associations don't ease up on those rules or at least amend them to account for the use of technology, the problem's only going to continue. I mean, if we really want to use these tools for access to justice, the bar associations are going to have to allow for it, account for it, because not everything can be done out of Utah and Arizona. No, I think that's right. It's going to be interesting how that, how that intersection between lawyer regulation and technology plays out over the next couple of years, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the bar associations, they equally need to be open to the technology and they equally need to be very clear about responsible use of the technology. It shouldn't be a free for all, but it should be. It should, I mean, we have these abilities to help more people and do work better. We should allow lawyers to do them, but also make sure that they're being educated and required to use it in a responsible and safe way. No, I think that's right. And I suspect this is before your time, but I, I think about a technology-assisted review of documents. I started at a time when you sent a bunch of us then young associates into a warehouse to look at boxes of documents. I still did some box document review in the beginning of my career. <laughs> yeah, and then the, then the technology came in place and there was this argument about it's, is it the practice of law? Is it an effective tool? And now anybody that doesn't use technology to review documents is close to committing malpractice, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think the same will eventually be true with generative AI in particular, but again, not as a blanket statement, but if you have this ability to do things better and more efficiently and more cost effectively, and you're just refusing to learn it, that's going to eventually, I think, be a malpractice area. No, I think that's right. I think that to me, the major difference is the speed of change. I mean, the technology since review occurred over a fairly long period of time. This technology is developing much faster now. Which people, myself included, tend to forget because it is moving so quickly. And sometimes it's easy to say, oh, why aren't we there yet? Or why hasn't this changed? And change historically takes a very long time. And we're talking about things that usually happen over the course of years happening in six months, but expecting the outcome to happen the same way. And it really, I mean, you have to stop and remind yourself of that because it's not even, I mean, it was November 30th of last year that ChatGPT was publicly released. So for the vast majority of us in the industry, other than those in the know in advance, we had no concept of what generative AI was and what it could do. And now we're talking at these levels already about it. That's right. I know we've uh, run a little bit over time, but one last question. What's next for the publication? Where do you see it going over the next couple of years? Where would you like to take it? Stay the same course or you have changes you want to see happen? Well, we always want to stay on the cutting edge of it, which is why we really dug into the generative AI stuff kind of on the early front of it because we saw it being a big deal. So. We definitely will continue following it, but we don't want to just be an AI publication. We want to, I want to dig more into what law firms in particular are doing with technology, not just AI, but technology in general. One thing I just started, I said early on that there were initiatives I wanted to start at the beginning, but got sidetracked because of AI. We just recently launched a few weeks ago, it's a new series called Startup Spotlight, where we're doing profiles of 
interesting early stage startups in the legal tech space and what they're doing. Again, not just AI companies. They have a form they can fill out. We're just trying to really highlight the real innovations that are going on. Like we said, you know, not the 10th company to do the exact same thing. And it doesn't even have to be the biggest, flashiest thing. It could be the simplest thing, but somebody thought how to solve that discrete problem that has plagued people for years. So we want to do more of that. I do want to do more of the access to justice. I'm calling it innovating for good. Just way it doesn't have to just be access to justice. It could be DEI, it could be mental health, all of the sort of you know the feel good topics in law that have long been swept under the rug. I like to give more highlight to that, and then just see where it goes. It keeps surprising us every time. I think I know where something is going. I get some completely blindsided by an acquisition or a new development or. Even though, you know, they claim to not be working on it, I'm sure GPT-5 will come out and change everything all again. I'm sure that's right. But you're doing some fascinating work, and it's great to see. I've, I enjoy reading your writing, and for anybody that hasn't, I refer them to your publications for really some savvy reporting on the industry. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I inherited a great team when I started here, so I'll pass it on. <laughs> well, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.